0: Well, I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we make our way through this letter, uh, we come to verse 17. I'd like to begin reading there uh, through the end of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so as you speak to us today through your word, we pray that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would convict us of sin and that you would grant to uh, us hearts of faith and gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name, amen. Well, beloved Lord, my four year old son Jacob often asks me, Dad, are we going to church today? And it occurred to me this week, what does he think he means by the word church? And so I asked him this morning, What, Jakey, what does church mean? And perhaps at a loss, he responded saying, Nothing. Church means nothing. And, uh, and I, I'm sure he didn't mean that. But I'm going to put the question to you. What do you mean by the word church? Perhaps some of you are coming up with that same answer. I, I got nothing. What do we mean when we say the word church? Well, it's important to ask what does the New Testament mean when it uses that word church? Well, the word translated church simply means assembly or gathering together of people. And yet, I think when the New Testament uses the word church, it's describing two things a people. And a place, a people about whom certain things are true. The church is the people, the congregation of people who have called upon the name of the Lord, and together with them and their children have been baptized into the name of the triune God. It is people about whom certain things are true, namely that they are saints set apart as holy ones. But it's also a people who gather together in a place, a place where certain things are done. And so you people, the church, have gathered together as a church in this place to do certain things, namely to hear God's word, to offer up prayers to God, or as we see in our passage today, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so the church is a people who and a place where, but the New Testament never uses the word church to describe a building. The church never describes a facility, a building, or, or a structure that you gather in. And I think that's easy for us to keep in mind because we meet in an elementary school. We're currently meeting in an elementary school that we typically don't even meet in. And so it's easy for us to distinguish between the building that we meet in and what we, who we are and what we are doing in this place uh, as we approach God's throne of grace. Other churches that do have a building, I think they have a difficulty distinguishing between the church building and what the church truly is. Well, the, the New Testament church, the churches that, that Paul wrote to, like the saints gathering in Corinth or Ephesus or any other city, they didn't have a hard time distinguishing between the building and, and the church because they didn't have church buildings themselves, the best evidence we have is that all of the early church, at least for the first century or so of the early church, is that they met in people's homes. Wealthy members of the congregation who had large estates would, uh, would host the church meetings. And the best archaeology that we have of Corinth is that uh, these buildings would be able to host uh, 20, 30, perhaps even up to 60 people if it was standing room only. And so it was in those places that they would gather together as the church to do the things that the church does: call upon the name of the Lord, hear His word, and partake of the Lord's Supper. And yet I think it's the fact that they were gathering together in, in homes that presented a particular problem for them. As we see, the Apostle Paul distinguishes what you do at home with what you do in the church, or as. The church in our passage today. And perhaps there were some of those practices that were typically practiced in, in Roman culture in the home that were creeping their way into the church, and in particular, the way in which they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we're going to be seeing today as we consider the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper and the serious consequences that came upon them as a result of that abuse. Keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, beginning in uh, verse 2 of chapter 11, has started a new section where he is addressing issues concerning the worship of the church, how the church ought to conduct itself as it gathers together, as the people gather together in the place to do uh, the business of the church. And in general, it's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul started by commending the Corinthians. If you skip back to verse 2 of chapter 11, he starts off by saying, I commend you for remembering me and keeping the traditions that I imparted to you. And so Paul starts off by praising them for maintaining those traditions. That is the piety and practice that he handed on to them during his time in Corinth. Paul spent 18 months there with the Corinthians, worshiping with them. And so there was a lot that they learned from the Apostle Paul. Although, of course, as we'll see, they are in need of serious corrections on a number of issues. And although the Apostle Paul began by praising them, commending them for doing certain things, what we see in our passage today, that when it comes to their observance of the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul has no uh, commendation. Uh, He has no praise at all because of the way in which they were severely abusing it. He says, when you come together, that is, come together as a church, it is not for the better but for the worse. As a pastor, it's my duty to encourage people to come to church, and I always encourage them, look, no matter what, even if you come to church and you don't get anything out of the message or you don't feel better, it's it's for your benefit. Just come to church. I always encourage people to see, to, to do that. And yet the Apostle Paul here, in writing to the Corinthians, he says that their assembling together of the church did more harm than good. It was not for the better, but for the worse, And the first and foremost, he says, because when you come together, there are divisions among you. Here we see again that division is rearing its ugly head. Division was the first serious issue that the apostle addressed in this letter to the Corinthians. And back in chapter one, that division, of course, was based upon party loyalty, that various groups within the congregation would pledge allegiance to different apostles one would say i follow paul another says i follow apollos and there were divisions in the church based upon loyalty shown to various preachers or teachers in the church and yet here it's not the divisions that the apostle paul is describing in chapter 11 it's not based on part party loyalty to particular people but divisions based upon socioeconomic distinctions What we see in our passage is the difference between the haves and the have-nots, those who have food and those who do not. That's what's dividing the church as they gather together. You see, the Church of Corinth, like all churches throughout the history of the world, had a diverse ethnic socioeconomic makeup. You had Jews and Gentiles. You had slaves and free. You had the rich and the poor. And yet, as we saw back in chapter 1, the rich and the powerful were a minority within the church. Paul says, look at your calling, brothers. Not many of you rich, not many of you wise according to worldly standards, uh, but the majority were poor people in the congregation. And yet, Paul then goes on to say something that may puzzle us at first in verse 19 when he says, there must be factions among you. It's important to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul is not conceding to the fact that factions are unavoidable, but here I think what he's doing is describing the situation as the Corinthians saw it. If you look at at, at life in this present age, it's clear that there's always going to be people who have money and people who don't. There's always going to be the haves and the have-nots. Even Jesus told, told us, the poor you always have with you. This is a fact of life in this present age. And so the Corinthians probably were saying, look, these things are going to happen. Factions are unavoidable. There's always going to be the haves and the have-nots. And yet here Paul turns that argument on its head by saying the fact that there's always going to be somebody less fortunate than you gives you an opportunity as a Christian to prove the genuineness of your faith by how you treat them. See, the Lord gives us opportunities to love and serve our neighbor. And and so these distinctions that happen in everyday life are opportunities for us to show the genuineness of our faith by how we treat our neighbor, and in particular, with regard to the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul calls uh, communion in verse 20. He calls it the Lord's Supper. And that word translated Lord is, is, a, is a, actually a very rare term in the New Testament. The, the way in which it's uh, there in the Greek it makes it more than just a meal about Jesus or a meal instituted by him. It's not just the supper of the Lord, but it, is, it, it, it describes the fact that the, the supper is his own personal possession His own personal possession. It is a meal where the Lord is present as host. Those of you who were with us when Dr. Baugh was preaching from Revelation chapter 1 and, and where John describes how the fact that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It's the same exact Greek word there. Those are the only two instances where you see this unique construction of that word Lord. it's it's a, a way of describing something that belongs to him. He used the example of, in the ancient world, if you ate at the king's table and you would see the king's cup, it was something that belonged to him as his own unique personal possession. Well, here we see it's the Lord's Supper where he is present as host and he's sharing it with us. It's also interesting to note the the way in which we can tie together those two occurrences of that unique word Lord, Lord's Supper, Lord's Day, we see that the saints gathered together on the Lord's Day in order to partake of the Lord's Supper. And yet the Apostle Paul in verse 20 says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you were eating. Now this would come as a surprise to the Corinthians because that's precisely what they were gathering together to do. That's precisely what they thought they were doing when they came together as a church. They thought they were observing the Lord's Supper. And yet the Apostle Paul says, look, no, because you are abusing the Supper, because your abuse of the Supper was so egregious, it can no longer be called the Lord's Supper. It's not his because they're abusing it so much. Rather than taking up the cup of blessing, they were eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And so I think it's helpful for, to ask it, for us to ask at this point, what on earth were they doing? What were they doing uh, to abuse the supper so much that Paul says, you're not even eating the supper anymore? Well, we see Paul described their actions in verse 21. He says, in eating, that is, in the, in the act of partaking of the Lord's supper, each one goes ahead with his own meal. You see, in the early church, they observed the Lord's Supper slightly different than us. They would have not just—they they would not just partake of bread and wine like we do, but they would have entire meals. They called these agape meals, love feasts. Uh, Jude describes that in Jude one twelve, and so they would have entire feasts, entire meals, gathering together probably in the evening when we typically. Have supper, which is the main meal of the day. They would gather together, they would have a feast at uh, during which, during the feast, they would take the elements of bread and wine, consecrate them, and partake of the supper together. That's why Paul calls uh, the Lord's Supper the table of the Lord in uh, chapter 10. And in order to provide the, the meal, the food for this meal, each one would bring his own meal. That's why Paul describes it. He says, you have your own supper that you take. Each one would provide his own meal for himself. And yet what happened in Corinth is that rather than sharing your meal, like a potluck, rather than sharing your meal, especially with those who do not have any food, each one who had food would devour it in front of the other. That's why I think how a better way of translating each one goes before with his meal it's, it's not like they're just eating before they should. No, they're devouring their meal right in front of the other people who have uh, nothing to eat. And I think this circumstance is, is made even worse considering the fact that we have good reason to believe that during the time of Paul's writing this letter, there was actually a grain shortage in Corinth. Paul probably referenced that grain shortage back in chapter 7 when he talked about the present distress. And and this this shortage, this grain shortage, would exacerbate the divide between the haves and the have-nots. Now, we typically think of the rich as as the ones who have. The rich are the ones who, of course, have the food uh, uh, for themselves. But in, in the ancient world, it wouldn't just be rich people who would have food. This would also include servants or those who live uh, within the household of a patron or patroness. Because it was the responsibility of the patron, the, the head of the household, to provide for all those under his charge, including servants. And so even during times during like a grain shortage or a famine, servants would at least get their meals. They would have food. And so the type of people who would, who would be most vulnerable to a grain shortage would be the non-slave, what we might call the self-employed working class. Those would be the people most susceptible to a grain shortage because they wouldn't have the resources to provide uh, to, to buy the, the 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 grain with spiked prices. And so, you keep in mind, it's it, the rich people in in their minds, at least, they're thinking, "Well, look, I'm I'm not only providing for myself, but I'm providing for all of my servants, all of the people within my household." Why should I then have to provide for these other people that I'm not even responsible for? So that's what's going on. As they gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, certain people are bringing food. Other people just have nothing. And the people who have the food are devouring it, gorging themselves. And then they partake of the Lord's Supper. So that by the time it comes around to partaking of the Lord's Supper, one's stomach is growling, is hungry, and the other person is drunk. Here's this, dis- this complete disparency. One is, st- is starving and the other person is so full, they've, they've had their fill that they are even drunk when it comes time to partaking of the supper. And here we see uh, just how absurd this is, as they partake of the one bread, which is meant to symbolize their unity in Christ. We see one starving and another one full and drunk. That's why Paul then goes on to rebuke them in verse 22, and he says, do you not have houses? Here he's distinguishing between what you, what you do at home and what you do in church. Those, the, the people who had food were using the Lord's Supper to flaunt their wealth at the expense of others. If they must gorge themselves on food, Paul says, do that at home. If you can't wait, if you're so hungry, eat at home before you come to church, rather than using your wealth, using the fact that you have food to flaunt your status and to shame the others who have nothing. Such callous and unacceptable behavior showed a complete disregard for the church. That's why Paul says, do you despise the church of God? This isn't some private social club. It's the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And we ought to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ accordingly. They were humiliating those who had nothing. The brother for whom Christ died were humiliated and left, uh, uh, left hungry as the others were just stuffing their mouths. And as we see, the way in which they were cheating their brother, God takes very personally. And we see Paul's emotion here. He's he's livid. He is livid. It's interesting when he he starts off uh, by saying uh, in in verse 18, he says, in the first place, there's divisions among you. And, And whenever you start off by saying in the first place, you always expect somebody to say, and then secondly, but you notice if you keep reading, Paul never gets to second. He's just, he, he gets on this division that's happening in the church and he is livid. That's why he repeats himself. He says, shall I commend you? No, he's already told him I'm not gonna commend you. But again, he just puts the question to them. Just think about it for a second. He is livid at the way in which they are abusing the Lord's supper. And so that brings us down to verse 27. Therefore, when we see the apostle Paul talking about somebody eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. I think this context, understanding actually what was actually happening in Corinth, helps us understand this often misunderstood verse. So many times ministers will read this verse, especially as they're what we call doing what we call fencing the table, warning those uh, who are unbelievers from coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And, and we read that language of partaking in an unworthy manner. We typically think of uh, uh, unworthiness or worthiness being a personal thing. It's not, that's, not the, the, that's not what's in view here when Paul talks about partaking in an unworthy manner. It's not one's personal worthiness in view. If that were the case, none of us are worthy to partake of the supper. It's the manner in which they were partaking. You see, by using the supper as a means to flaunt one's status and to shame others who were less fortunate the Corinthians were despising the church of God, partaking in an unworthy manner, and thus incurring guilt upon themselves. They were incurring the guilt of the body and blood of the Lord. Here we are reminded of the fact that sacraments, such as the Lord's Supper and baptism, serve a dual purpose. They do two things. They put to death the old man, and they make alive the new. And so in all sacraments that Christ has instituted, both of them, there's a symbol of judgment, putting to death the old man, and a symbol of making alive, giving life. We see that, for example, in Romans chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul describes baptism. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There you see the dual function of baptism, putting to death the old man, making alive the new. And the same thing is true of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. And for those who, like the Corinthians, were partaking of the body and blood of Christ and, and partaking of the, of the elements of bread and wine, and yet not by faith embracing the spiritual realities that those signs pointed to, those signs were only bringing them further condemnation. They were incurring guilt because they were not partaking in faith uh, by faith in Christ. And so that's why the Apostle Paul goes on to say in, in, in verse twenty eight, then let a person examine himself. We see the need for self examination is not only for for us to examine ourselves to make sure that we have faith, to examine ourselves to make sure that we are made right, that we are right with God, but also to examine ourselves with regard to how we treat our neighbor. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There Jesus is speaking in the context of the sacrificial system at the temple, where you would have the luxury to be like, hold on one second, I'm going to go reconcile with my brother and come back and offer this animal. But I think the, but the, the application is clear for us as we partake of the supper. If we have something against our brother, if we're harboring bitterness or hatred in our heart towards someone for whom Christ died, we ought not to partake of the supper. We ought to repent and believe of that sin and purpose in our hearts to be reconciled to that brother or sister before we partake. and, 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 This is, by the way, when the Apostle Paul speaks about the need for self-examination, the need to be able to discern the body, and we'll talk about what what that means, Uh, which, by the way, this is why we require that our youth make profession of faith before coming to the table. That's why we don't give the elements of, of bread and wine to infants or to very young children. We wait until they are able to profess their faith so that they are able to examine themselves and to discern what's happening. Paul's language is clear, and that's why we have that practice. And so what does Paul mean, for example, when he says in verse 29, that whoever eats, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, what does he mean when he says discerning the body? Is Paul referring to the actual body of Christ, which the elements of bread and wine symbolize? As Jesus says in the the words of institution, this is my body. Uh, Or as Paul says in verse 27, that you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Or as he said back in chapter 10, verse 16, the bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? So is that what Paul's talking about when he says discerning the body? Or is he referring to the church, which he also in this book, says, is the body of Christ. As he said back in chapter 10, verse 17, since we all partake of one bread, we are one body. And in chapter, uh, in chapter 12, verse 13, he says, uh, for in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. We are the body of Christ. What is Paul referring to when he says dis- we ought to discern the body, the physical body of Christ or the church, which is the body of Christ? Well, I would suggest to you that perhaps he's referring to both. Perhaps he's referring to both. And yet, we need to keep the order, uh, the priority in mind. The reason why we can be called the body of Christ as the church is because we are united to his risen body, which is in heaven. It's because we are united to our risen Savior that we are there for one another, the body of Christ. And since in verse 27 Paul clearly was referring to Christ's actual body and blood which he specifies, this is probably Paul's primary reference. That's what he's describing primarily when he says we need to discern the body. You're not just eating bread and drinking wine here, you are actually partaking in a spiritual manner, not physical, but in a spiritual manner, the actual body and blood of Christ. And and as and, uh, since we don't have time today, my plan is next Sunday to go back and to look at verses 23 through 26, the words of institution, which I read every Sunday for us. My plan is to go back and to look at those verses and to really dig into and understand what we describe, what the Lord describes by partaking in remembrance of him and proclaiming the Lord's death as we partake of the supper. But in short, For now, keep in mind that by by partaking of the body in remembrance of him, by discerning the Lord's body, we proclaim his death and thus conform our lives more and more after his image. As we partake in remembrance of Christ, we bring to the forefront of our mind what Christ has done for us, and then we act accordingly. We are reminded of the fact that we have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And so accordingly, not only are we conformed more and more into his image, drawn closer to him and drawn closer to him in communion, but we are also united more and more together with, the fel- with our fellow believers as the body of Christ. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. And yet primarily it's because we are united to Christ who is in heaven that we are therefore united together together. Uh, as the body of Christ here on earth. I think we see that clearly taught in chapter 12. If you just skip ahead, chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, here he's describing us as the body of Christ, as the church, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave slave or free, And all were made to drink of one Spirit. Did you catch the reference there, not only to baptism, but also to the Lord's Supper? As Paul says, we were baptized into one body by the Spirit, and we drink of the Spirit. And so there we see, as we are united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the means of faith, we are also united together as the body of Christ. And yet, since some of the Corinthians were using the Lord's Supper to fill their own belly and to promote their own status at the expense of their fellow believers in Christ, they were partaking in an unworthy manner and they were incurring judgment upon themselves. This is not a case of ignorance. It's not that they didn't understand, uh, you know, all of the theological implications of the Lord's Supper. No, this is a total perversion of the Supper. This is taking the Lord's Supper and turning it on their head. And so that's why Paul says it's actually not even the Supper anymore. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's your own Supper that that you're shoving into your mouth. And we see, therefore, there's consequences, serious consequences, which Paul describes in verse 30. He says, some of you are weak and ill. And some have died. The judgment which came upon them was physical illness, which in some cases proved fatal. And, and it's important to keep in mind that Paul's actually describing these, the sickness coming upon these people. And even in the, some cases, death, this is coming upon believers. And I think that's clear in that he describes their death as having fallen asleep. Some of you have that perhaps in your English translations. Some of you have fallen asleep. That's a term that Paul reserves exclusively for the death of the believer. He says they've fallen asleep because they will wake up at the resurrection. And so here Paul is not describing, uh, he's not saying that the Corinthians have lost their salvation. He's not saying that God has judged them in the sense that he's sending them to hell, but he has in some extreme cases, even allowed the physical death of the believer because of their sin. Paul describes this judgment as discipline, which is for their good. It's discipline, which separates them from the condemnation of the world. This is what Paul or Peter describes as judgment, judgment beginning at the household of God. And as Peter says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is serious stuff, somber stuff. This is stuff that we would probably just as soon rather ignore from the history of the early church. We often like to focus upon the signs and wonders and miracles that happened that we read of in the book of Acts. And certainly that was happening, those signs and wonders accompanying the preaching of the word. But we also see in the early church extraordinary acts of judgment that proved that the Lord was jealous for his people by maintaining the purity of his church and the purity of the supper. Perhaps you'll recall the situation with Ananias and Sapphira as they dropped dead before the apostle Peter because they were lying to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we read in Acts 5, "...and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things." This is a healthy, respectful fear that causes us to search our hearts, and causes us to uh, do things in accordance with God's will and not according to ourselves. So what are the solutions? As we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, perhaps some of us here are thinking, what do I need to do to make sure I don't partake in an unworthy manner? Well, first of all, Paul says, judge yourself. He says, if you judge yourself, you won't be judged by God. And so here we see, again, the need for self-examination. Uh, do I have faith in Jesus Christ? Do I seek to live under his gracious reign? Or am I cherishing sin in my heart? Am I harboring bitterness in my heart or hatred for my neighbor? If that is the case, then you need to repent and believe and purpose in your heart to be reconciled to that brother or sister. So that's the first thing we need to do is examine ourselves to make sure we're in in the faith, to make sure that we have repented of our sins. Hopefully you've already done that with the reading of the law today, as we've confessed our sins together and received God's assurance of pardon. But the other more tangible thing that the Apostle Paul says is in verse 33. When you come together, he says, wait for one another. Now, this translation may cause us to wonder and to think, well, wait a minute, were people showing up late? And waiting for people before you eat, how does that fix the problem of those who have nothing to eat? This has caused a lot of commentators, a lot of, uh, they've been perplexed at this too. But I would suggest to you a better way to translate Paul's advice in verse 33 is found in the footnote, at least of my Bible, where another way of translating this is when you come together, he says, share with one another, share with one another. Well, that makes sense. And that solves the problem. For those that have, they ought to share with those who have not. Those that were gorging themselves on food and and over-imbibing, they ought to share with those who have nothing. It's a very simple and yet profound solution to the problem. Sharing and in so doing, they show the love of Christ. They show uh, the right way in in which they ought to treat their brother as they approach the Lord's table to partake together as the one body of Christ. And if they do this, the Apostle Paul says that when you come together, it won't be for judgment, but it will be for good. See, Paul desires their assemblies to be for the better and not for the worse. There's much more that the Apostle Paul has to say, but he says those things will have to wait until when I come. But as we uh, prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper today, let us keep in mind that this is a table of blessing. This is something that the Apostle Paul wants us to partake of. He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, this is the Lord's Supper that he is here present with us as host in order to strengthen our faith and confirm his love for us. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you gave your life so that we might live. You offered up your body and your blood on the cross to remove the curse of God that we all deserve and to give us life. Not only did you do that, but you also instituted this supper to remind us of what you have done and to strengthen our faith as we feed upon you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to partake of this in a worthy manner, in a way in which it will bring blessing to us, and that you would continue to strengthen our faith as we follow after you in gratitude. And we ask this in your name. Amen.